It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello again, everyone. Glad to be with you once again. This week, we'll travel to Barrington, New Hampshire for a visit with Andy Cahora, owner and head wrench at Barrington Motor Works. William Plam, he is off this week, but will be back with us next time. Want to take a minute to say thank you to Todd Trumbore and the crew at the 100th Motorrad Anniversary for putting on a wonderful event a few weeks ago. We'll have interviews and excerpts from some of the presentations on the program in the coming weeks. Thanks to everyone for dropping a note with guest suggestions and otherwise. Got an email from Martin in Glencoe, Scotland. He's been listening to the program, and now apparently he is in the market for a first-generation R80GS. So, Martin, good luck on your hunt. Keep us posted on how you get along. A reminder, you can write us directly, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Com. We really enjoy hearing from everyone, and we do take the time to reply to every email. So drop us a line. Let us know what you got going on. Okay, Andy Cahora at Barrington Motor Works is leading the way among the next generation of independent BMW motorcycle mechanics. I recently used Andy for a few component repairs on my 77 R100S. Both the transmission and final drive needed an overhaul. And in each case, Andy let me know what to expect price-wise, what work and service options were available for each repair. And communication was great. Turnaround, super fast, the work was done quick, and the repairs were done right the first time. So kudos to Andy and all that. Now, I should say, we've interviewed a number of independent shop owners and mechanics on the program here, all of whom are excellent options for component repair. And many have done work for me and some of you out there. So it just happens I used Andy for these jobs the past year. He did a great job. I want to mention that. He would have appeared on the program as a guest regardless. So that's that. You can find out more about Barrington Motor Works. You guessed it, BarringtonMotorWorks.com. There's also a Facebook and Instagram page out there with that moniker as well. Off we go to New Hampshire for a visit with Andy Cahora on the Airhead 247 podcast. All right, we're on the line with Andy Cahora from Barrington Motorworks. And Andy, hello. Thank you for taking some time to join us. Uh, I want to get things started off right out of the gate. Uh, we first met uh, on the phone, I guess, maybe email uh, four or five months ago, I had a transmission on a 77 R100S that needed repaired. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, first off, 
Is that job still kind of fresh in your mind? Have you cashed out the uh, data and information on that yet? <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm. It's hard <laughs> to remember it all. Um, I didn't have a chance to take a look at the the repair order, um, so it's somewhat fresh in my mind. I have a fairly decent memory of it. I think that. Uh, there was a few things that were worn out on it, but it, I, from what I remember, it was a fairly standard rebuild with a few maybe exceptions in there. Yeah, the initial uh, red light, I should say, or caution light was I drained the oil on it, and a, a small piece of metal came out in the drain pan about the size, half the size of a pinky nail, and I guess it was a, a shift uh, dog uh, coupling or something like that. And so... Uh, the great thing about it was I called you, and you you know I I guess it was a matter of good timing. You weren't too terribly busy. It was still kind of the winter months, and so you were able to get the job turned around real quickly and done right, which I uh, really appreciate. I, I, as I mentioned, I wanted to just uh, talk about you do a lot of transmission rebuild, a lot of component rebuild. So when you get a transmission in for a rebuild, sometimes you're going to know what the customer has said what the problem is, what the issues are. Sometimes you may just get one in the mail or somebody drops one off and says, hey, it's not working. Uh, mm -hmm. Fix it, fix it. So just if, go a little bit over sort of a typical 247 transmission rebuild, uh, your philosophy on going in there and how do you, how do you tackle that job? Yeah, so, you know, we usually in communication with the customer, you know, their our job is to kind of translate what they're experiencing into a, you know, problem area. You know, um, they're, they're going to describe, uh, you know, it jumps out of a gear or uh, there's a whining noise or it does one thing or another. And, and our job is kind of, you know, to kind of... <clears throat> assess over the phone what it might be. Um, the hard part is when you start kind of putting ideas in your own head, you, you kind of are, are suiting the facts to base your theory uh, or to, to make your theory rather than your theories to, to create facts. So you kind of have to get into more of a detective mode and, and kind of suggest what you think it could be or where there are potential issues that could pop up from that. But really, you know, it's uh, we try our best to convey to the customer that, you know, our first thing is to kind of take it step by step and, you know, start to assess it for the moment we start to kind of take it out of the box, do a visual inspection as far as, you know, what we might see just on the outside or, you know, um, rotating the, the shaft by hand or anything like that. You know, we do a lot more four speeds with slash twos and slash fives than we do five speeds, uh, almost to the point where I get a little gun shy about doing five speeds just because, uh, there's fewer steps involved with them, uh, so I always feel like I've forgotten to do something. <laughs> um, but the, uh, you know, once we once we pull off the output flange and, and take the rear cover off, um, you know, once we actually get a look inside, things tend to be fairly obvious. You know, with the with the five speeds, there's not as much adjustment with the shifting mechanisms or, or the shift forks themselves. You know, as far as alignment goes, um, so there we don't really have to assess that type of aspect with the five speeds, but, you know, there are a number of things that, that kind of stand out occasionally with them, but, 
you know, with the four speeds, your your shift forks are adjusted on a on eccentric. So, you know, the tendency for you know your shift fork to be bent or to trend towards one gear more than another gear, and therefore want to jump out of the gear that it's farther from. Or, you know, even in the late slash twos, which are more similar to a, a four speed from a from a slash five or a two four seven, is um, that they switched the the pawl arm that holds the shift disc in place. Uh, they changed it over to a scissor spring, very much what you'd find in a, in a four-speed for a R seventy five slash five type of bike. Um, but they made it a, a, a smaller diameter wire, so in higher speeds, uh, in fourth gear, it had a tendency to want to jump out. So they updated that spring. So you know these little things that you just start to kind of pick up on and see that you know what to look for, what to evaluate. Um, but you know, usually the you know our first steps are. Uh, take what the customer is saying, try and think about where the problem issue could be, but then, you know, fully disassemble, clean everything because, you know, dirt and grit and grime and rust and corrosion, it'll cover up lots of different stuff. Uh, so we clean it all up and make sure that we can actually get a good visual inspection done on it. Uh, and then we, then we do our evaluations from that point forward. At that point, we kind of let the customer know what we have found, what we are recommending and suggesting, uh, and then go from there. And we're big believers of, you know, wants and needs being separate. So, you know, I remember with your transmission, we had originally talked about doing different upgrades to the That's right. uh, gearing and to the shift mechanism and stuff. And it's kind of, those were more wants. And then once we kind of understood what we were up against and, you know, the costs of these things, you know, it kind of made more sense to stay within a certain budget and really tackle more the needs than the wants. Yeah, indeed. I want to mention you, you, you said there you tend to handle more four-speed gearboxes with slash twos and slash fives, and uh, that can be a major, uh, a larger percentage of your work. I understand that. And this, what I'm going to say here is really just anecdotal, uh, yeah. if anything. But I had a slash five, uh, 73, 750 uh, for a number of years, about 18 years. I bought it. Uh, it was really my first BMW when I was in my early 20s. And I mentioned that because, you know, that was a time where I really didn't know much about maintenance, repair. I was a basic sort of, does it have gas in it? Is there <laughs> air in the tires? And go. And yeah. it wasn't until later in my owner tenureship that I really started to take a little more proactive approach uh, with maintenance and care and that kind of stuff. What I'm getting at is the slash, uh, the four-speed gearbox <clears throat> seemed to be, and again, this is just anecdotally speaking, going by my experience with it and my almost lack of maintenance or doing anything to it, seemed to be a little bit more robust uh, and held up a little bit better for me than any slash uh, six, seven, or five-speed gearbox. Is that just something I happen to experience or are there some design elements and things that were introduced into the five-speed gearbox that made it a little bit more pro problematic and prone uh, to, to failures? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that each one has its own, you know, pros and cons, but I think that your assessment of it being a bit more robust, I would say yes, and almost to the extent that it makes it almost... Um, 
<laughs> more of like kind of tankish, I guess. You sure. know, like the for example, the shift mechanism, it's a lot more basic. Uh the parts are kind of more overly built. There's far fewer springs and moving components and you know, parts that can go wrong. Um there obviously there are issues that can arise from them, but not as much as like the shift cassette in a in a five speed that we've found at least. Um, and then also just the the gears themselves. You know, it's the for the four speed. Uh, you know, first, second, and third. There's just straight cut meshed gears, and then once you get into the fourth gear, they become it's their helical gears. Um, you know, and then with the with the five speeds, kind of a similar design. The big thing that we've noticed on the five speeds um, is that the like for example the the shift dogs are, are they're they're larger but there's fewer of them um, so you know does that mean that they're going to and they're undercut a little bit so do they mesh into the slots in the in the freewheel gears or in the um, the shift uh, the coupling discs you know oh, do they shift into them more easily or shift out of them more easily do they engage more positively as a result of their undercut versus the four speeds, which have kind of more rounded dogs, and there's more of them, and you know you're you just have two couplings that move up and down on the output shaft uh, to engage. So, yeah, I'd say they're built a bit more robustly, a bit more basically. Um, you know, they're they're built more for, I guess, maybe longevity, and that's likely just more to do with being something that's carried over from, you know, the the slash two era thing, where I think that. The period kind of like 1968 to like 1973, I guess, you know, they're kind of like learning and evaluating BMWs. And, and, and you kind of start to notice it over the period because we work primarily in the 50s and 60s BMWs at our shop. But you can kind of see this transition of, hey, this is a good idea. This is a bad idea. We're going to move away from this or we're going to keep up with this. So, like, you know, we've had, you know, 19 mid-1940s uh R R seventy five sidecar, you know, military sidecar bikes, and and the engine is much more similar to what you'd find in a slash two uh, and and slash three, but the transmission is much more like a slash two than you would see in a slash three, hmm. even though the slash three kind of was between the two models. So, you know, the slash three is like a totally different monster, both for the transmission and the and the um, final drive. And really, the only reason I bring it up is just. It seemed like they were trying different things and learning from it and seeing what worked, what didn't work. Um, and my guess is that likely the same thing with, you know, using basically the same transmission from a slash two uh, when they transitioned over to the slash five and then being like, yeah, there's got to be a different way, a better way, you know, make things a little bit more lighter, make them a little bit easier to, you know, fit five gears instead of four gears in, but still make it the same size and make it functional and make it maybe, you know, in their mind at the time, uh, you know, more uh, user friendly, serviceable kind of thing. But like, even if you look at like a, the K bike uh, transmission, it's very similar. And even they made the upgrade on the shift cassette to do a, a, uh, a detent roller from plastic to metal. So before people were using the ball bearings that we use now on them, that's right. available from like Seaman Rock. Mm-hmm. You know, people would take the the metal roller from a K bike transmission on the detent arm, and they'd install it in the in the five speed transmission to get rid of that plastic. So, you know, everybody kind of was learning as they went, it seems like. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that we don't really work on too many bikes that are past 1980 is there's a lot of that going on. They were kind of changing companies that they were working with from 
you know, AT to Brembo to, uh, you know, different designs for output shafts and bearings and, and um, circlips and, you know, shielded bearings versus sealed bearings versus open bearings. And it seemed like there was just so much. I mean, just the the, the amount of variety in the forks and the front ends and the brakes and all that stuff. It yeah. seemed like they were really just, you know, trying out different ideas and seeing what worked and what didn't work depending on the application. So, um, where there's a bit more consistency with, with especially Slash 2s. I mean, from 1955 to 1969, there was not a huge amount of change. There was, but not a ton, you know. Yeah. Let's uh, talk a little bit about some other projects you've had in the shop recently. I checked out your Instagram page. Uh, I saw a photo of a customer's 75 uh, R90S in Daytona Orange uh, that, mm-hmm. that uh, you just finished uh, a little maybe light resto on, or I'm not quite sure what was going on there, but uh, just tell me your, I guess that's kind of fresh in your mind a little bit too. Tell me about your experience uh, with that particular bike. What, what, what all did you do? And uh, you know, what, anything, any epiphanies or stumbling blocks going into uh, going through that bike? Um, no, no stumbling blocks really. So we, we, we're pretty blessed with having really great customers. Um, you know, we, because we focus on vintage bikes, you know, people kind of give us the benefit of the doubt and, and give us a whole lot of trust and leeway to kind of do the right thing. And, and the owner of that bike is very much that way. He's got a, a whole lot of different bikes that he, he has in his Armada, you know, not just BMWs. He does a lot of older, you know, Indians and Harleys and Excelsiors and, and uh, Hendersons and stuff like that. So um, this is one of his and, and you know, he <laughs> he's bought, motorcycles, you know, in particular BMWs that he's been chasing for 10, 20 years, you know, that he finally, you know, <laughs> got, got the got the previous owner at the right stage in their life that they mm-hmm. were ready to let it go kind of thing. And this is one of those cases. He had bought the bike from uh, the original owner uh, of it, uh, and he bought it and put it away uh, at the same time in, I think, 1981. Um, was wow. That bike up. Yeah, so I mean, it had probably three thousand miles on it, something like that. Good grief! Um, yeah, so she was a baby, but because she had sat when he got her, he sent me photos of it um, when he had first picked it up. You know, it had various levels of mold in different colors all over it. Oh. And, you know, he, he lives in Cape Cod, so you know they're very close to the ocean. Yeah, and lots of sea sea spray and the salt. Oh my goodness, can do all sorts of things to the aluminum and, and the paint and. Um, you know, this one was somewhat covered and, and, and stored, but not, you know, impervious to, to those types of scenarios. So, um, so yeah, so he cleaned it up a bunch, you know, he's very much, this customer is very much into the, you know, it's only original once and I want to try and keep it as close to that as possible. So, you know, he's willing to go above and beyond in a number of cases on, on these bikes to, to get them where they need to be. So when he dropped it off, you know, he said, you know, he, I think he had Bing rebuild the Delordos that uh, had come with it, So, he, but he had those rebuilt maybe <laughs> 10 years ago. So they were sitting in a box, and he brought those along with a bunch of other parts that he had collected over the years that he was, you know, going to do something with it. But, you know, he, he's a, a scallop fisherman, so, you know, he's out to sea, and he said, you know, I'm going to be out to sea, and, uh, you know, here's what I want to do. If uh, anything comes up, you know, air on the side of I want it done right and I want it as close to original as possible. Uh, so we kind of took those two guidelines and, uh, and, and kind of went with it.
Spare tubes. Yep, got them. Spare starter relay and clutch cable. Check a Rooney. These are just some of the things on your checklist you may have when preparing for a road trip on your 247. Two things you may not have considered, the BMW MOA Anonymous book and the MOA's roadside assistance plan. No matter how well you and your bike are prepared, yep, the unexpected can happen. The BMW MOA Anonymous book, it's one of the most confidence-inspiring items I pack when traveling. It's full of contact information for MOA members across the U.S. and internationally who can offer assistance in the event of a breakdown or provide a tip on where to grab a good sandwich or catch a live band. I've used the anonymous book on a few occasions over the years. The result, always the same. Friendly assistance with a repair and a great story to tell down the road. Conversely, I've hosted and assisted fellow riders over the years and the same applies. Always a fun story and the feeling of satisfaction when helping someone in need. Now, roadside assistance plans. These start at $20 a year for the basic and top out at just over $60 a year for the platinum roadside and tire hazard protection plan. That includes 100 miles of free towing up to four times a year and two tire replacements each year up to 250 bucks for each tire. The Platinum package covers up to three bikes, regardless of the brand or year. As with any offer, there are details and conditions here, so be sure to check out more on this on the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America website under the Resources tab. So next time you've got a long road trip planned, yes, pack your spares and make sure your bike is tuned and ready to go. And for that extra peace of mind, have your MOA anonymous book and roadside assistance plan ready as well. All right, back to our chat with Andy at Barrington Motorworks. Uh, and and kind of went with it. So we ended up doing, um, you know, a lot of basic maintenance that maybe it had been lacking uh, as a result of, you know, sitting since the early 80s. Um, so, you know, tires, uh, wheel bearings, we re-spoke the wheels with chrome um, uh, chrome spokes and nipples. Um, you know, we did rebuild the forks. We did the steering head bearings, um, rebuilt the, the brakes, you know, from the calipers all the way up to the master cylinder. Um, we did a lot of cleaning along the way. Um, we did, uh, I think we did a top-end reseal. We definitely did a... Um, a service to it, you know, points condenser, um, installed the carburetors, tuned those up, and did uh, head retorque and valve adjustment and rocker float adjustment and changed all the fluids throughout. Um, there was a little bit of wiring that needed to be done to it. Um, I was trying to think. Was it was that a set? Was that a seventy five model? It was. Yeah, that's that's what was printed on the nameplate. Yeah. So I had I had a real similar situation in that I had an original uh, Daytona Orange from that same year. I purchased it. It wasn't that low of miles, and it hadn't been stored that long, but it had about 30,000 miles, about 26, 27,000 miles on it, and it had been sitting uh, not not quite that long, maybe four or five years. It hadn't been ridden that much, <clears throat> and um, I basically did all those services you're you're describing there. Uh, and probably had a little less cleaning to do. Uh, the one thing, though, and I'm wondering uh, if you surely you came across this, especially with the 75 model, that was right smack dab in the middle 
of the 90s run and i had to be real conscious uh, conscious of making sure flywheel bolts were the correct ones the neutral switch was the correct ones there were a few parts and things that went on in that uh transitional year especially with that bike that if you're not careful you can order the wrong parts and no surprise i i might have done that for for a couple things did you find yourself double checking the parts fish and making sure uh you were exactly right uh on that uh, particular year and model yeah you know the the a lot of the time, you know, we're for that type of stuff, you know, um, you know, we're entering into the, <clears throat> our bigger kind of like service season right now. Uh, so as a result, I tend to buy parts, uh, in, in the understanding that we're going to be going through them pretty regularly. Oh, okay. You know, that includes, that includes, you know, oil filters, but it also includes like rear main fields and oil pump O-rings and, uh, you know, various, uh, uh, keyways or cotter pins or, uh, even like the fasteners for flywheels, the three different ones that are available, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, the two different switches for the neutral switch that yeah. are available. So, you know, as a result, we kind of, there'll be times where you, where you get a bike like that, where it's kind of on that cusp of, it could be one, it could be the other for a variety of different things. Um, and, you know, if we pull, you know, like we had, uh, right now we have an R75, no, sorry, R90, no, it's an R75 slash 6 in, and it's it's labeled as a 74. Well, we pulled the the, the neutral switch out of it because it had been leaking, um, and we're, we were expecting it to be the, the earlier 74-style neutral switch, and it was, in fact, the, hmm. the, the later one. So, you know, my first thought is not, oh, it's... Well, why would it have this switch? This is the thing is that someone put the wrong switch in, uh, you know, and it's maybe I just didn't, I hadn't noticed that, you know, the neutral light wasn't working or that it was working when it was not supposed to yeah, uh, yeah. every year rather than in, in, in the neutral position. Um, but no, I mean, it, it ended up being that it needed that longer kind of knob on the, uh, on the neutral switch like the earlier ones did. Um, so no, it's kind of, we, we, I, I've always, you know, gone with the understanding that, you know, uh, Customers have can have a tendency, inadvertently and on purpose, uh, to to tell lies or to fit, <laughs> but motorcycles never lie. You know, it's that's, so it's, it's funny. You know, one person can say one thing, but as soon as we take a look at the motorcycle, that'll tell us the true reality of the situation. And you know, if it's if we're pulling, you know, uh, you know, short twenty four millimeter, you know, fine bolts out of the the flywheel, I'm going to start to wonder what's going on, kind of thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's, we kind of just we, we. I try my best to have everything that the mechanics need uh, for any given job before they do it, so that there's no downtime between. Oh, we got to wait on parts, kind mm-hmm. of thing. So um, it's it's a it's a it's been a learning curve to to get that, but um, it's it's a benefit to kind of yeah that figure makes that out that make that makes a lot of sense. And you know, come of course, my perspective's a little bit different. I'm a hobbyist home mechanic where you're running a business. So it makes right. a lot of sense that you've got all the, uh, a lot of those parts in stock. Let's uh, let's turn back the clock a little bit here, uh, Andy. Uh, I'm curious, your introduction to motorcycles in general, and then maybe how you got the BMW bug uh, and got into the uh, vintage slash twos, uh, uh, which seemed to be kind of in your wheelhouse. But just tell me about uh, your history with with motorcycles. Were you a little kid and started out with a 
uh, a mini bike or, or what? How, how, how did that start out for you? Yeah, I came into motorcycles pretty later in life. Um, I, I went to school uh, in Vermont to college, and uh, and I was there, and you know, did the the normal thing that all the adults in my life told me I had to do, kind of thing, and you know, finished four years of college. But while I was there, I got really into rock climbing, um, and I eventually became a rock climbing instructor and, and guide you know, around the Northeast. Um, but I also, you know, worked at a local outdoor gear shop and you know, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, at one point I was working in Bar Harbor as a, as a climbing guide and just kind of thought on a whim, Oh, it'd be cool to have a motorcycle. <laughs> so I just kind of looked around, had no idea what I was doing, what I was looking for. I just wanted to find something that was within my budget, which was pretty minimal at the time. Um, and ended up finding a, uh, it was a 81 Suzuki 650 GS mm-hmm. with a, a chain drive. Yep. And, it ran for about a week and then stopped running, and I just could not figure out what the hell a carburetor was, uh, how any of it ran, what, uh, why it was how or why it would spark or make combustion. I didn't even know like what four-stroke or two-stroke engine was. It was just kind of me, you know, banging on it with a wrench, you know, in the in the dark, having no idea. So then I stored it for about a year at my folks' house. They live in Maine as well, and um, I the the woman I was dating at the time who, you know, eventually became my wife, we were traveling back and forth and, and, you know, uh, between Maine and New Hampshire, or excuse me, uh, Maine and Vermont. And we were living in, um, uh, on Lake Champlain, uh, in Vermont while I was guiding ice climbing. And my work was during the day and she was a bartender. So her work was at night. So we were kind of ships passing in the night. So I'd stay up and wait for her to come home. I was watching, you know, uh, we lived on an island, so we had like two two channels on the TV, and one of them was PBS, and there was just an infomercial about uh, Motorcycle Mechanics Institute down in Florida, which was part of UTI. Yeah. yeah. I, thought, I thought, you know, it might be nice to do something fun, and my wife was very, uh, well, my girlfriend at the time was very much very, you know, you can't be living in your car, you know, and uh, moving from job to job as a climbing guide in a dirt bag forever, you know, if we're going to make a serious life for ourselves, so... I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, let's see what happens. So I said, would you be willing to move down to Florida for two years with me? So she said yes, and we moved down to Florida sight unseen. And, you know, a week later I was starting learning about motorcycles and, and went through their, their program. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or not, but the the basic program is that you, you spend about uh, nine months going through like a basic training of just, you know, here's a, what a carburetor is and, Here's what a two-stroke and a four-stroke engine does, and here's how ignition systems work, and you know, here's a class that's specific about engine disassembly and reassembly. Here's uh, you know how you do service work. Here's how do you write a repair order. Here's how you figure out electrical systems, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then at the end of that nine months, you choose specific brands that you want to do. You know, Yamaha, Suzuki, Kawasaki, etc. And being, Harley and Honda have the biggest and the longest programs uh, because they have a lot of available to them. But BMW was kind of, they made it very much like the uh, the crown jewel, you know, and you had to be invited to join. You had to have good grades and good attendance and stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, they only had certain classes available at certain times. So, you know, you would, you if you were a student, you could go um, uh, in classes in the morning, in the afternoon, or at night. And, um, at the, when I first started, I, I was going in the morning, 
Um, and then uh, when I, I decided at some point, I was working as a valet at that point, and I thought eh, it might be good to get some real-world experience aside from just technical schooling. So I got a job at a dealership, and they said, well, there's no point in you coming here at 3 o'clock in the afternoon if we're going to close at 5. So I switched to night classes. So I'd, I'd go to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, leave at about 2 or 3, and then go to class until about 11 o'clock at night and do that for a number of months. So I got into the BMW program as a result and was going to school at night and very quickly realized that I'm never going to get a job in BMW because it was all computer stuff, you know, navigating their different systems uh, and their, their parts fiche and their, their warranty programs and, and your tests. You had an hour to take an online test and you had to know how to do it. And they were very much, you know, like you refer to uh, like Airheads as 247. They did that with all the models. Uh, and, you know, they only taught from basically uh, oil heads on. There was nothing about airheads or slash twos or any of that. They would touch on it, but, you know, they would interchangeably use, you know, uh, an R60 slash two or an R75 slash five with, you know, their specific, you know, 247 or whatever it was moniker. And it just was really confusing. But if yeah. you put a bike in front of me, I could work on it and I could do whatever the task was. I just couldn't do the computer system. So I thought, ah, I'll, it was nice to get the the feather in the hat, but I'll never, uh, I'll never work for a BMW dealer or whatever. Um, and so then I went on to Honda, did Honda, and then graduated. And uh, I asked my one of my teachers at BMW, you know, if I did want to work for BMW, where would I be looking to live? You know, like what where are the big BMW areas? And he said, well, you can either work in California. Or you can work in New England. Those are the two BM, big BMW areas. And I thought, okay. So I applied at a, a couple dealerships um, in the New England area and got a job as a service writer right out of school. So my wife and I moved back up to uh, Vermont, worked at New York, and uh, was a service writer. And then what, worked my way into various what, positions. What dealer was that? Uh, that was for Max BMW. Oh, that okay. I was going to assume that. I'm gonna let me just jump yeah. in here real quickly. Uh, this yeah. is a total non sequitur, but I, uh, it deserves mentioning here. Now, let me. You are a native of that part of the country. Uh, yeah, I'm originally from New Jersey. Okay, you have zero East Coast accent. How how did that happen? <laughs> uh, I had very strict parents. <laughs> I the first thing I noticed was when you said Bar Harbor. Yeah. So I, uh, they I, pounded that know, out of you? <laughs> no, I mean, like if you were to talk to my sister, she says certain words that very much identify her as like a New Jersey, Pennsylvania person. Um, you know, for example, I, when I moved out to Vermont, I said water. And everyone <laughs> said, what the hell is water? Yeah. It's it's water, and it required me having to overemphasize it, and I'd say water, <laughs> and then then eventually it just became water. Uh, but you know, there were a couple of different examples like that. But um, no, the I mean, I was never, I never, I'm, uh, you know, most of the main mainers that I have met, it's the accent that, that I think you're referring to. It tends to be kind of like an old mainer uh, accent. Okay. Um, 
and and it's it's a, uh, there's also like cultural things to go with it. Like if you ever ask directions of somebody you know in Vermont or New Hampshire or Maine, you know it's it's less like you take this road to that road. It's you drive to this farm, or you drive to this stand of hemlocks, or you <laughs> go to this guy's you know you know junkyard or graveyard or something, and you make your turn there, go there. So it's you know there's different things that you kind of pick up on, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's it was it was it was a welcome change of pace. I was not a. I grew up on a farm in New Jersey, so I was kind of already kind of more of the I want to be in the woods and away from people type of situation. Um, but you know that started to change as a lot of folks started to move into New Jersey uh, from the surrounding like New York City area. So it became a little bit more kind of urbanized, and uh, and that's also why my parents moved away too. So. Uh, you know, moving up to Vermont, I could within five minutes be in the woods or be on the lake or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's nice. Well, yeah, sorry for the not, you know, changing gears in midstream there. But, oh, no, no. That's but totally yeah, you're fine. mentioning... I, I, have a, I have a five and a half year old and a two year old. Everything changes every five seconds. So. Yeah, I, you know, I'm just listening to you mention these places you've worked and where you've been and the part of the country. And the whole time I'm thinking there's zero discernible accent there. So anyway, okay, so we left off in the story. Uh, you started as a service writer at Max. We're generally speaking, what around what year was that? I want to say 2011, 2012, okay. something like that. Okay. All right. Um, it's, it's a little blurry, but so yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, at that point, the, the general manager there was, um, was Ben Stratton. I don't know what it is now or who, who who's there now, but, um, you know, he was great. Uh, probably, you know, many of the jobs that I've had in the past, you kind of learn what you don't want to be as an employee or as a, as a sure. person in that job. But, uh, it was a complete opposite when I was there. It was kind of, you know, every, everything that I wanted to be, uh, he kind of exemplified. So it was really great to be around, you know, it was like, being there at seven o'clock to open up the door and push all the bikes out. And then there until 11 o'clock putting warranty paper through because it was like, you want to grind as hard as that guy does kind of thing. So, um, so it was a great experience. Um, and then the service manager there, Tony, um, he was kind of the first one to introduce me to any of the airhead stuff. And, uh, at, at, at some point, uh, a number of mechanics left, uh, at the same time. So I kind of got thrust into a service writer, and mechanic position, uh, which was great. Uh, it was exhausting because, you know, you get in, you get all the waiters lined up and all the paperwork written and all the parts lined up and, you know, hand it off to the service manager and, you know, they dispatch it to the, uh, to the mechanic and you're also the mechanic. So once everybody <laughs> that's, a, that's a waiter uh, comes in, you know, and you're running to the back to do some service work and, you know, then you, get your service work done and then you run back up to the front and the service manager hands you all the paperwork to be able to check people out and, you know, get paid and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, it was great. I was, I loved it every minute of it. Um, and then my wife, uh, she's an attorney. So she, um, she was working a, a job as a defense attorney in Vermont, um, where we were living and, uh, and through a number of, you know, situations, she decided she didn't want to be doing defense work anymore, uh, where we lived. And, uh, she got offered a, a job doing real estate law uh, over in Portsmouth area. So, you know, Max had a number of stores right. uh, and, and Northampton was one of them. So, uh, you know, I begrudgingly uh, requested a transfer and they, they were very kind enough to let me do it. 
uh, and and I went over there, uh, and I was working there for a bit, and um, you know, different different store, different general manager, different um, mentality of, of you know how the how the shop works and so forth, and um, you know, I had really started to get into uh, working on the airheads and. and I tried my best to, you know, sweet talk the service writers while I was there so that I could work on any of the airheads that came in or any of the slash twos that came in. And there were a few that came in every now and again. Uh, so that was kind of fun, especially in the winter time. You know, it was, uh, you know, you had a little bit more leeway with, with time as opposed to just cranking through services and doing tire changes and, you know, add on Farkle and stuff like that to some of the modern bikes. But, the modern bike thing never really stuck for me. You know, it, it, you, you plug a motorcycle into a computer and it tells you what's part, what's wrong and what part to replace. It just didn't really make sense to me. Whereas, you know, you have a, an older bike that you can, you know, adjust the points and condenser and you could uh, adjust the carburation or the valve timing and, and, you know, it would run better or different, or, you know, you could assess, you know, a running condition as a result. And that was, that to me was fun. Like I liked the idea of being able to, change something on the side of the road or fix something on the side of the road. And that's why the, the older airhead stuff always um, kind of stuck with me. But I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com, that's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. William will be back with us next week for another Tech Talk, but now back to our final segment with Andy Cahora. Um, but yeah, no, it ended up that where we moved in Vermont was uh, three miles from Chris and Barbara Betjeman. Uh, and uh, when I started getting more deep into the airheads and learning about Flash 2 stuff, you know, and I think like everybody else who kind of, you know, gets introduced to the Slash 2 world, you know, you learn that there's this great book out there and uh, that they wrote it. So I, I had seen an article, I think it was in MOA, uh, like the, I, I don't know if it's still called the On magazine. or Yes, that, that's right. That. Mm -hmm. um, and I, lo I looked at the pictures and I read the article and I, you know, I saw pictures of Chris and Barbara and literally based on the pictures, and the way that their workshop looked, I thought it was in Europe somewhere. Yeah, it's a neat, so like, oh. it's a neat old uh, <laughs> shop. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh yeah, you know, this is pretty cool. These guys are doing cool stuff, but you know, didn't think anything else of it. And then you know, so then I decided to try and order the book, and uh, and I had I called and and said I'd like to order the book, and I spoke with Barbara, uh, and you know. 
she said, okay, well, you know, shipping is this, blah, 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 and I said, oh, where are you shipping from? She said, oh, we're in Barrington, Vermont, or Barrington, New Hampshire, excuse me. And I looked it up on a map, and I was like, I think that you're, like, down the road from me. <laughs> um, so I, I, I made an, a, a, an appointment to just kind of go over there and, and pick up a manual and, and to, to meet them. And, you know, it was kind of funny to Chris, too, that, you know, somebody lived three miles away that was interested in old BMW motorcycles. So, you know, over time, he just kind of, they kept on inviting me over on weekends to say, to see like, Hey, here's what we're working on. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And, you know, like I'd I'd help out here and there and, uh, you know, volunteer my time when I had it, you know, obviously the dealership you're working Tuesday through Saturday. um, And we had Sunday and Monday. So I would just go and spend pretty much all of half of Sunday and all of Monday uh, over there, just kind of lifting things, cleaning parts, doing whatever I could. And, uh, and eventually they just kind of said, do you want to make a, a, a full-time thing of this? Uh, and <clears throat> I agreed to it with the understanding that at some point I'd be able to, to take over ownership of it. Um, because I, I'm, you know, at that point they were in their, uh, just, just going into their seventies. Uh, and it was kind of like eventually they were going to decide they didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, if that was the case, then I was out of a job, you know? Yeah, so, exactly. No, that uh, makes a lot of sense. And I can imagine the sort of the when you went over to pick up the manual uh, for the first time when you bought it, <clears throat> I can imagine there were some, some light bulbs and synapses going off in your brain uh, that, that probably hadn't happened before. And you were charting a, a course for there, whether you realized it or not. Yeah, you know, and 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 it was, um, you know, there was a period of time where everything that I am doing now, I wanted to do at the dealership, and it was just not something that was really working out the way that I had wanted it to. You know, I was the the bikes weren't there, uh, the interest wasn't really there, and it was it was just challenging to get as much experience with them as possible. You know, there was. Um, I don't know if you've ever met Phil Cheney. Uh, he was he was down in the Connecticut store, and he was like the airhead guy uh, at and with throughout the the four dealerships. And you know, I wanted to be him. You know, like I knew that eventually he was going to want to retire, and I was like, I want to know everything that he knows. I want to know, you know, how to do all this stuff, and 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 you know, be the airhead guy. And it just wasn't really panning out that way. And I thought you know, in 10 years, where am I going to be? You know, I could either take the bull by the horns and I could make this leap and I could, you know, for lack of a better description, be like the master of my own destiny and say, you know, I could, I could only work on airheads and only work on slash twos and and really dig in and and learn this stuff, you know, or I could let somebody else tell me what I can, can and can't do. Um, and, and that's kind of really what made the, the, the switch for me. Uh, and then when I made the, the switch over to Chris to work with Chris and Barbara, it was like baptism by fire. It was just, here's, you know, a dozen or half a dozen engines. Here's half a dozen transmissions and <laughs> half a dozen final drives. So, you know, the goal would be that your, your sixth engine is better than your first engine. Um, but it was, I was extremely lucky to have their guidance, you know, from the get go you know, to be able to, to see, you know, here's what you're doing. Here's where you can improve it. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, hammer, hammers are not allowed, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and it was great. I mean, it was, it was, it boosted my confidence. Uh, you know, it's, 
whatever that 10,000 hour rule is, you know, like you, you yep. just keep doing the same thing over and over again and you get better at it. You can, and if you're not, then there's something wrong. Um, and, and it was nice. And now like, I, I can't imagine have going any other way. And, 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 um, yeah, I was just really lucky. Yeah. I want to ask you, and I don't want to ask anything inappropriate. And if, um, you know, you want to dance around this question a little bit, I understand. Yeah. How did how how was the deal done where you're hired as an employee and then they trans you transfer to the owner uh, and you know there's some financial considerations there. It's not just as easy. I mean, they've got the building, the land, the shop, the the books, all the you know. There's a lot going on there. So was that a sort of and your wife's an attorney. So was there a legal doc? <laughs> was there a legal document? Was it a handshake deal? I mean, just tell me about. I'm just curious what you can talk about how that worked. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I went and started working with them with the understanding that within like a year, two years, you know, they were going to want to retire, and and it would be up to me to decide what I wanted to do with it. Um, which obviously in my mind was that I was going to buy the business and, um, you know, keep it moving forward, you know, obviously in, in a, probably a different direction than it had been, but, you know, keeping up with the same, um, you know, spirit of, of what it had been. Um, so, yeah, so I worked with them for a year, maybe two years. I, I can't remember exactly um, as a full-time employee um, every day. So, you know, you show up, can't remember what time I would show up, probably around like eight or eight thirty. Sit down with them while they finish breakfast and talk about what we're gonna do with the day. Go in, do it, have lunch uh at their place and um and then go back in and, and finish up uh you know around five o'clock and, and do that every day for two years and um it was a we did a lot of customer bikes, you know, restorations and um, you know, component work and so forth. Uh, but a good portion of it too is that they had a number of inventory bikes that they wanted to build and and then sell. So, mm. uh, you know, that that's why there were so many engines and transmissions and final drives to to really sink my teeth into. Is that you know these were all being built so that they could be put into restoration bikes that would eventually be sold. And, and by the time that that transition was happening between ownership. Uh, we had restored two R69s, uh, a black one and a white one that we called Salt and Pepper, uh, and then we had uh, an R50s that we had um, restored. And, and I use the term restored, you know, uh, because it's it just is kind of like a catch-all. Because you know, the more you talk with people about you know what a restoration is, everybody has their own opinion right. uh, about what it is. But most of the time, and we still carry this over into the way that the shop is run now is that we offer multiple versions of restoration depending on what the customer wants and what their budget is. Um, so for these bikes, you know, we utilize, you know, stainless steel fasteners, spokes and nipples uh, for the wheels, lighting systems, base coat, clear coat, powder coat, um, things like that that were kind of what we refer to usually as kind of more of a like a service preventative, uh, you know, longer lasting design uh, of a restoration as opposed to, you know, a nut and bolt concourse restoration. So the bikes that we make, you know, they're most of our customers are going to be riding those bikes a lot. 
as opposed to, you know, putting them in a museum or, or trailering them to a show kind of thing. Right. Um, so I, I, I think I heard Tim Stafford say one time that he builds like the Ferrari of BMW world. And, you know, it's not like you, you don't, nobody really uses a Ferrari as like a daily driver. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was kind of like, Oh yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that's why Tim Stafford makes these incredible restorations. And, and it's like, I don't think that we make, uh, poor restorations, but ours is kind of focused more on like someone who's going to be riding the bike a lot so that it kind of, prevents corrosion and, 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 you know, decay of the motorcycle if it does set for a little bit kind of thing. Now, how long have you been the sole proprietor? When did you take over, uh, the business and, uh, yeah, how long, how long has that been going on? Yeah. So, so Chris and Barbara decided to sell the business, uh, to me, uh, in February of 2019. Hmm. Um, so I've had it since then. Um, I worked out of their shop, uh, which was they, their property. They have their home, and then they have the shop, and then they have a garage. And they're kind of similar to like what you would see, like an A-frame type of design. Um, and and that was nice, extremely generous of them to do that because it helped me kind of transition and not have to worry about uh, <laughs> the multitude of things that eventually I did have to worry about uh, right out of the get-go. Um but, you know, when you spend a, a winter in a place that is very, has very little insulation, it's negative 11 degrees out and there's a wood fire stove that you have to get going before you can get any work done, you kind of start to look for uh, places that are going to be a little bit more convenient yes. um, as far as work goes. So um, I ended up finding a uh, a shop that was maybe a mile down the road from, from their house. And, and their their house is on like a a dirt road. Um, so the other benefit of having a shop that is not on a dirt road is that in the winter or in the fall, you kind of get, you know, muddy, uh, sure. and rutted out. And oh, then yeah. in the springtime it's muddy and rutted out. And in the wintertime you can't drive on it. So, you know, being on a main road, you get a little bit more time for riding bikes into the se- into the fall season and you can ride bikes a little bit earlier in the spring season. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I moved everything out of the shop, um, all the inventory that I had purchased, all the tools that I had purchased and, and my dad, my dad and I basically just did, uh, an entire week of moving stuff from one building to the next building. Uh, and the new building was originally, it was a, um, uh, used Volvo dealership, uh, that <laughs> there was a, an older fella who owned a bunch of land, uh, that his name was Marty Hardy. And uh, he divided up the land and gave it to his children. And one of his sons built this dealership um, on on top of a marshland. Uh, so two big garage bays and then kind of like a front showroom area with big front doors so you can drive cars in and out kind of thing. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and it, it had evolved over time for various reasons, some legal and some illegal reasons, but um, but it kind of took shape. And then the current owner uh, of it, he, uh, he ran a... Um, a cabling company, a fiber optic cabling company out of it for, you know, 20 years. Uh, so when I came looking for it, you know, he, he had the two garage bays filled with, you know, huge spools of wire and cable and, and, uh, you know, he had to move it all out of there. And I moved everything in with my dad over the course of a week while still keeping the shop open and bikes up on the lift and, and, uh, work turning, uh, so to speak. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of, you know, uh, 
I don't know if you've done much moving, but you know, usually when you pack up like a U-Haul van or something like that, you have a plan and it all goes in and it comes out a certain way. But always at the end of it, before you close the door, there's a few things that you just kind of grab and throw in. Um, and, and that's kind of what ended up happening is that with the shop is that, you know, I had a plan, I had shelves, I have racks. I, you know, I took the time to really draw it all out on grid paper and how it was all going to fit. And it worked out great until all of a sudden there was just a few little things left and they just kind of got thrown in boxes and put on the floor. And it happens. Kind of thing. Yeah. So, that happens. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting to kind of see how that's transitioned um, because it went from just being me. Um, and, you know, I designed the shop to just have uh, space for one mechanic and, and, and bike storage and, and customer parts and all that kind of stuff and inventory. And uh, now there's, two mechanics and, uh, and me and, and a uh, part-time administrator and, uh, you know, had to kind of let it evolve over, over the course of that time to, to make it all work for everybody. And, uh, so far so good. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm going to guess that you're in your early thirties. Am I off there? I don't, I didn't really check, check my math on anything. Is Am I right in guessing your age? Uh, no, I am, uh, I just turned 39. Okay. Okay. All right. So late thirties. Okay. So yeah. Um, well, I'm curious, what about your peers, your friend group and stuff like that? Um, do that, what, what's their, do you have other motorcycle friends who are in the business? You have other friends that are, who are professionals, uh, and other, jobs and things like that. I'm just curious, what kind of reaction do you get from folks or what do your friends say, you know, well, I run a motorcycle shop. Uh, what, how, how, how do you blend in with, uh, with everybody in that? Um, well, I, I, I have a lot of friends that I've had since like kindergarten. Okay. So, yeah. You know, a lot of, a lot of them, um, you know, the, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I have like three or four friends that I've had since kindergarten, and, uh, you know, a lot of the folks, they kind of didn't really understand why I was into motorcycles or that I was owning, I ran a business that was related to motorcycles, but occasionally, you know, they would, like, I had one friend who was very into photography and he came to visit and he, he hung out at the shop for a couple of days taking photographs of it. And, and a lot of the photos that you'll see on our website, um, you know, were, were, you know, from him and, and you know, he kind of learned that, you know, that we're not just, you know, some shop just, you know, in, in my backyard or in my garage kind of thing. Like it's a, we try our best to be a professional shop, you know? And, um, aside from that, you know, like a lot of my friends are, are now are, are small business owners too, you know, whether it be a contracting or landscaping or various, uh, other things, but also too, that I was, I've never, I was never into social media. I never really had like a personal Facebook or Instagram thing. And then as soon as the, the shop, I kind of got involved with Barrington and then took it over. Um, you know, our, my social media presence had to go up, you yeah. know, it, it was kind of free advertising. Why not? So, uh, another example of baptism by fire, you know, just kind of yep. learning that on a whim, I took like a $50 course on how to, how to do social media and, uh, you know, after the end of the course, the teacher was like, you're ahead of the curve, you know, like you, you have figured this stuff, some of this stuff out on your own. I mean, I'm no influencer, but you know, like I, I, I try really hard. And the benefit of that has been that we've made a lot of connections with a lot of other shops, uh, in the area, uh, of, well, I shouldn't say in the area, but like, yes, in the area, but also all over the country. I mean, 
I have, you know, people that I like to call friends that are over uh, in Washington. Um, there's a guy out in Seattle called Scarab Motor Works. There's uh, Hex Moto down in Florida. Um, you know, there's, I'm going to miss a bunch of them, but, um, you know, uh, there's a guy locally here that um, started a shop called Precoast Motorcycles. So, you know, there's uh, AS Customs, which is down the road from us. You know, like there, there's a, a, a tighter knit community of these small independent shops that without social media I would not have had the ability to connect with, um, which is really nice. It, it, it's nice to see uh, people of a younger crowd getting mm-hmm. into motorcycles, and, and in a lot of the cases, BMW motorcycles. Um, as a result, I've always been kind of one of these people that um, – I've always had a hard time with people telling me what to do. So, like, I guess you could say authority. Like, I never really got into trouble, but I never really was super polite to, you know, people and, you know, teachers, police officers, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, and that kind of, you know, carried on with uh, the the motorcycle BMW world. There's a, you know, it, for lack of a better understanding, it's, it's a fairly older person. 100%. Uh, 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 demographic. Yep. But what I also learned is that just being polite, you know, and, and talking to people like human beings and, and being available to answer questions, you know, like it goes a long way with a lot of people. Um, and not only that, but that show of respect earns you a great deal of, of respect with people who have been in the uh, in the industry for a while. Like, you know, I've listened to all of the episodes that you put out and every single one of them I've learned something, you know, that maybe I didn't know before, but I've had the pleasure of talking with the majority of the people that, that you've interviewed. And it's like, my God, you know, like there's, there's so much knowledge and experience. And, and some of them are just like Nathan Mendes is probably like one of my favorite, you know, old time mechanics out there because yeah, right. of the personality, you know, and, um, and I think is the guy that's working with him, Mike, Mike, Mike or Mikey. Mikey. Like yeah. Yeah. Gold stroke. Yeah. Like, the, the two of them together, it's just like peas and carrots, you know, they're hilarious. So, um, you know, it, it makes it feel like, you know, <laughs> not me, but we kind of thing, you know, where uh, social media kind of, even though it has its negatives, it also has had a way of kind of bringing that all together uh, yeah. and, and being able to, to know that you have peers, like you said, that, that are out there. But um, as far as, you know, close personal People, you know, will meet new, like my kids, you know, all of our, our new friends are all the parents of the, of our children. Um, so, you know, you meet them and they're like, oh, what do you do? And you're like, nah, I just work on motorcycles. You know, but, <laughs> yeah. it, you know it's, like, it, it, it's hard because it's like, you know, how do you convey that, you know, yeah. what you consider important to someone? I mean, I'm not carrying cancer over here. You know, I'm just, yeah. you know, wrenching on old, you know, junky motorcycles. Yeah. So. yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, that was kind of the gist of my initial part of the question there is, yeah, when you're, especially you're a, a, a parent with younger kids and, you know, as you'd have to in that situation you're meeting other parents and making small talk um which can be a struggle sometimes and you might not even want to do it so um yeah, yeah i was yeah, yeah you know i i i'm a big believer of the quietest person in the room is usually or excuse me the loudest person in the room is usually the weakest i have a tendency to just kind of keep my mouth shut and you know if people ask me questions then i am happy to answer them but I, I unless somebody you know owns a bmw trying to describe you know that you run a, a restoration shop and right. a service shop they're kind of like oh that's cool you know but like they, they don't really no one really understands it but I, I i'm sure that's the other way around like we have a 
a friend that is a is a, a freelance writer, and then we have someone who, you know, is a teacher, a theater teacher. You know, like all these different things that I'm just like I have no concept whatsoever of what it is you would do on a daily basis. But yeah. I'm sure it's amazing. Yeah, well, that's interesting. All right, so uh, that, that was uh, thanks for diving into that a little bit. And you, you know, yeah, you're yeah. you're right. Uh, you're you're on the uh, lower end of the age spectrum when it comes to. Uh, you know, sort of professional mechanics and shop owners in the world. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, I, it's good to know where you are, what you're doing, how you're inter, uh, with your communication with uh, other folks and that, you know, you're sort of the next generation that's carrying the, uh, carrying the torch on. Uh, one guy I interviewed who mentioned you was George at air support BMW in Canada. And, yep. uh, so <clears throat> he, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, you know, he said, you guys sort of team up, partner up on some things. And maybe he was just referring to how you're networking, uh, with some of the other guys you mentioned, but, um, tech, because we're going to do an interview or an episode with George here, uh, probably either before years or after years, kind of back him up. So just tell him maybe some of your impressions about him and how, how you guys met uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, George is probably one of the best humans that I've met as a result of motorcycles, um, you know, BMW specific. You know, like he is uh, exceedingly gracious with his time and his knowledge. And and you've, you've obviously interviewed him or you will be. Yes. He yeah. is super smart. I mean, he's like nuclear engineer smart kind of guy, you know, like, uh, it's, it is exceedingly humbling when somebody that intelligent and that capable calls you up asking for your opinion, <laughs> you know, it's, so it's, you know, he, he describes it as a partnership and, and, and I try to, um, uh, entertain that idea for him, but man, oh man, it's, he's just incredibly good at what he does. Um, and has always been super friendly and super, uh, open to talking to me about a lot of stuff, but it it was nice because, you know, he, he and I became friendly through, through Instagram. Um, and he made a journey down with his girlfriend, uh, on his BMW, uh, Brigida, I think it's name, he calls it. Uh, Brigida, maybe I can't remember. I think it's an R80. Uh, yeah, I think it's he, that uh, bike he originally or that he's had for most of his motorcycling career. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they they drove down uh, on that uh, and stopped over at the shop uh, when it was still at Chris and Barber's, and you know he and I from that point became fast friends. But I don't know if that was he had had the shop for a while, and he also does a lot of um, racing team. Uh, participation and I think that he was working a, a, uh, his primary job at the same time that he was trying to run the shop and then at some point he decided to to go full hog and and run the shop um, and you know he's been uh, he and I have kind of grown our shops uh, together and and as a result of our communication you know we've been able to kind of come up with stuff but um, you know and and watch them grow you know as a result but you know, it's it, it's it would be hard to be a business owner, especially a new one, uh, without having some sort of per, like a sounding board, uh, someone to, to bounce ideas off of, ask questions of, 
uh, try and you know make sure that you you're not going crazy uh, with with the things that you're experiencing. And George is very much that person. You know, like if I'm having an issue with a bike or a customer, or you know, I think I'm doing something wrong. Like we had an R90 slash six in the shop for almost a year, and it was no matter what I did, I could not resolve a, a running issue with it, and I had the motor apart like probably close to a dozen times good grief oh my gosh it was it it was it was insane i i I, just bringing it up makes me you know (laughs) Um, but he uh you know george was always there to like answer the phone you know and be like how are you doing you know like uh and then you know occasionally he would call me and ask me for you know advice because he does a lot of airhead stuff and and our shop does a bit more slash two stuff um but you know it's uh you know as we wanted to as as i've wanted to grow the grown the shop you know he's been right there to say hey here's what you would need to do if you wanted to do this in-house like he does a ton of uh cylinder head work yeah um you know and i'm like i don't want to be at your level where you're doing you know uh buying a hundred thousand dollar machine shop stuff and you know do having a race program you know like can i get away with doing like using new way cutters or something like that you know and you know he's he's generous with his time to like talk to me about you know what he thinks what what would work and and how i could do it and how i could build it up and so it's it's been really nice to to have george there to uh help out um so there's nothing on paper in terms of right uh, right of a partnership, but there's definitely, like you had said before, there's definitely like a handshake thing that we're kind of there for each other. understanding. When need be. All right. So I don't want uh, to reissue uh, any trauma here, but I'm not going to let you gloss over the 90 slash six. So (laughs) what was the running issue and what resolved it? Uh, So what the running issue is that the bike would uh, once warm, uh, if you pulled in the clutch lever, uh, the RPMs would dump about 500 RPMs. And if you had the bike idling too low, we tend to have the, we like to have the bikes idling around a thousand RPM. Mm-hmm. If it was anything lower than that, um, which is what it was when the customer brought it in, it would stall out. You know, like if you stopped at a stop sign or a stoplight and held the clutch in, the bike would just stall out on you. Um, and it was, I don't think it was, I have a hard time identifying the one, you know, you know, silver bullet that that resolved it, as opposed to it was a lot of different things yeah. um, put together. But like, you know, your your main bearings are bad. You know, everyone will tell you that your your thrust shims between your the inside of your crank uh, and the case and the outside between the flywheel and the case. You know, there's a certain amount of play there, right. and, and you know one of the biggest fears that everybody has, especially when you're doing a flywheel or a reseal job or excuse me, a rear main seal job is, you know, you always hear block the crank, right. You don't right. want it to move forward and then it falls off the pins, you know, is one of the thrust shims, uh, warped or bent is the, is the pin not in far enough or out too far? Uh, you know, is your flywheel warped? Is it not being installed properly? Is it, you know, this, 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 that, and the other thing. And it was just, back and forth and back and forth. And then the R90 slash six and the R90S, they ran a, uh, heavier, um, uh, clutch spring, uh, like a, um, the spring disc on it. Uh, so much so that people at the time were complaining about too hard of a clutch pull. So then they came out with a, with a, a different spring 
So you know, we tried different springs. We I think we put in a, a, a spring from an uh, from a slash five in there to try and resolve it. You know, so it was just this back and forth and back and forth. And and it, and at first, you know, the first couple times that I took the engine apart and put it back together again, you know, you'd put it back together and you'd put it in the frame and then you'd put the transmission in. And the only really way to assess what you had done would be to reassemble it and try to ride it. Exactly. And if you hadn't resolved the problem, it would you know, you'd have to come apart again. So what I ended up doing for that is I would build it on, I'd rebuild the engine on the stand and then I'd attach the transmission to the back and then I'd use uh, a long piece of of steel bar to act as a clutch lever uh, and I'd engage the clutch back and forth that way and then turn the crank over uh, and see if there was any added resistance to it when it was cold. And the assumption was if it was, if it was okay when it was cold, would it be okay when it was hot? You know, so it was, trying to kind of recreate it without going full bore, you know, putting the engine back in, transmission back in. Um, but eventually, you know, the combination of, of fixes and, and resolutions and new parts that we put in it, it seemed to resolve the issue. Uh, actually, the customer just dropped off a, a, a transmission for an R69S the other day, uh, and I asked him how it was because I think he gave the bike to his son, and he said that it's, it's much better than it had been. So... I'll take that as a win. Good, yeah. Uh, I bet I bet you were very thankful to see that p- particular bike make its way out of the shop. Yeah, you know, it's there. There are certain bikes that you see uh, roll away, and you're happy to see them go for <laughs> variety of reasons. Um, yeah. You know, most of the time, you want it to be out of your. You know, you, you want your customer to be happy with the result and be proud of the work that you did, that, right. especially that you can stand behind it. But then there are other times where you feel that way and you think, thank God that thing is gone. <laughs> now I can worry about something else. And, and I have a really hard time with, uh, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that kind of stuff, you know, oh, yeah. and, and it's, it starts to wear on you. Yeah, I, I understand. I understand. We've all been there in one way or right. another. So I, I need to ask you, this question and it sort of relates to what we're talking about here i'll kind of ask it quick mash these two questions together so first part of it is what bikes do you own and ride and secondly because of what you do professionally does that affect your enjoyment or your ability to work on your own bikes or ride does it take take away from some of that i mean this is one of those cases where you know, I've heard people say, and I think George might have mentioned this to a certain degree, you know, it's like for some people it can be like just I like cheeseburgers, but I don't want to have one every day. Is there a, <laughs> is there a balance uh, with your love for motorcycles and riding? And, uh, you know, how, how do you has that been a problem or it's just never sort of crossed your path? Yeah, so uh, I have a uh, in a '72 R60 slash five that uh, I built out of a number of boxes. That mm-hmm. Another you know experience with my dad. He he drove with me to go pick it up in in uh, Central Maine, and he was, this is like right as I was starting to kind of take over uh, or get into get to work with Chris and Barbara, and, uh, and he was just looking at these boxes. My dad is not a mechanical person at all. And he, he looked at it and he's like, you're going to build a motorcycle out of this. You know, like it's crazy. It's just a bunch of boxes of crap, you know, but, uh, it took me about a year, put it together. Uh, and since then it has literally been a test piece for me, at least of how you can get a motorcycle to run with as little, 
uh, input as possible. I think <laughs> yeah. in the five years that I've had it, I've changed the oil once. I don't think I've ever drained the gas or the or the, from the from the tank or from the carbs, and I put in a new battery, and uh, it the battery died, and um, it won't it doesn't have enough juice even if I charge it. Uh, to work the the electric starter, but it'll start if I kickstart it. Sure. So, so, so yeah. So, like, I just beat the living crap out of that bike, and it's more of just a an exercise in what does it take? You know, like, is it going to require you know like uh, a shotgun to kill this thing, or <laughs> you know, will it will it eventually stop running? But so far, it has not. Interesting. Uh, every every spring, I roll it out. I give it a couple of kicks and and it goes, um, and and all as well. Um, but but yeah, you know it, it it's changed its shape over time. You know when I first did it, I, I you know had everything apart, so I cleaned everything up, put new bearings in and everything, and all new seals, and and you know made it look really nice, and it had street tires and and Euro bars, and and everything looked you know slick. And then where I when I was commuting to Chris and Barbara's place, you know it was on dirt roads and, and through, you know, I found a, a, a snowmobile trail and stuff. So I ended up putting, you know, uh, K60 scouts on it. Yep. Not like, not, not majorly knobby. They're not like TKC eighties or anything, but, um, those and some high bars on it and, and just, you know, beat it through the woods and on dirt roads, uh, almost like it was a GS and, and it's survived all of it. Um, you know, I think I had it, Oh, pretty much up to about halfway up the fuel tank in water, and it, and it just I just gassed it and jumped the clutch, and it and it got out of it, but uh, it, it worked out okay. Um, so so yeah, so that's the only bike that I have. My wife a long time ago said you're not allowed to bring home any motorcycles unless they're BMWs because otherwise they just sit around the house and 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 rot. Um, so so I got away from that stuff, but really. Um, as far as the riding bikes now, yeah, it's really hard to ride a motorcycle for enjoyment anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I know where you're coming from there. Um, you know, it's whenever I get on a bike, it's always a assessment. You know, yeah. how is it? How is it running? What is it doing? What does it sound like? You know, does it do something under load that it doesn't do if it's just sitting in neutral? Is it? You know what throttle position, uh, what RPM does a certain sound or feeling or vibration or you know electrical thing happen, and you know especially if it's a bike that you know has come in for one thing and we ride it, we want to one make sure that that is gone, whatever the work that we did is done correctly. Um, but at the same time, my theory is that we want to put more pressure on the bike than what the customer will put on. Uh, so like, for example, when we do our restorations, we always put about a hundred, 150 miles on it after we do the, the full restoration so that, you know, hopefully if there are any issues that will arise, uh, within that hundred, 150 miles. So I have a tendency to just really ride them hard, you know, and, and, you know, if a head gasket's going to blow or, you know, if a, if a noise is going to present itself, I want it to present itself there not when the customer gets it back. Um, so, so yeah, it's, um, we're we're blessed with the ability to ride a lot of motorcycles and a lot of different BMWs, which is great. Uh, but it's also given us the ability to um, enjoy some of them and not others. So, like for example, that R90s uh, that you were referencing earlier, you know that thing started up. I don't even think it was half a crank and it was running. Hmm. 
And then, you know, you, you get it tuned up, especially with those with the Delordos. I mean, if you tune those properly and those accelerator pumps work properly, I mean, you're sliding back in that, on that bench seat, you know, going down the road and, you know, it's pulling you backwards, you know, and, and you crack that throttle and it goes and you're like, this is what a bike should feel like, you know, but at the same time, you're, you sometimes get caught up in that and then you have to catch yourself. So, you know, we had an R90 slash six, uh, that had a, uh, a Hollandia sidecar on it. Uh, and the front end was, he put a, uh, an Earl's front end on it so that he would have the, the Earl style, you know, suspension, but it was still just a drum brake. So now I've got a 900 CC motorcycle going down the road, pushing a sidecar and I've got a drum brake on the front, which is not that much fun, um, you know, for that kind of power. So, you know, that is a, a real quick, you know, realization of like, I got to put my brain back on, you know, like I can't ride for fun right now. I have to pay attention to what I'm doing. Um, and that's usually the case with any sidecar, but that one in particular. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it's a lot of our stuff is spent uh, trying to improve our uh, diagnostic skills. So being able to ride for fun happens occasionally. One of our mechanics, Don, he has a lot of different motorcycles. He he actually worked for Amol Precision uh, down in New Jersey back in the late 70s and 80s. Um, so he's collected a number of motorcycles over uh, the years. And as a result, I think he rides for fun. <laughs> but uh, also it's kind of nice to have, you know, two mechanics, two full-time mechanics and myself in there where everybody can ride a bike or ride the same bike and give you uh, an assessment of, you know, what is it doing and why, you know, here's what you would change. Here's what I would change, you know, just to get it to run right. So if we've got three heads working on one particular, you know, running issue, the goal and the hope would be that you get it done right. (laughs) All right, Andy. So I've got about 10 minutes left on my AT and T calling card. Uh, that okay. I that I just charged. I if I, no, if no, I... no. That's totally fine. I want to get to these sort of last four questions uh, in, in a little more rapid fire order. So here we go. Your four favorite uh, airheads, and normally I say two four sevens, <clears throat> seventy to to ninety five. But uh, you, I'm going to allow some expansion because <laughs> because you're obviously working uh, on much older bikes. So. If you could have four in your garage, uh, pre-1995 BMWs, what would those be? Yeah, uh, I'm much more of a utilitarian uh, kind of person. So I like just, you know, basic everyman models more than I like the special ones. Uh, yeah. the, the special ones kind of thing. I mean, Hans Muth is a great designer, but I'm going to go with, um, I like the R60 slash 2. I think that that's the great, a great period bike for utilitarian purpose. Uh, I think the, the R75 slash five is, you know, an everyman bike. I think the R90 slash six, uh, is a bike that anybody can get on and enjoy. Um, and if I had to have one bike that is, uh, just kind of for selfish purposes, it would be an R80 GS. There you go. I'll accept all four of those. Um, <laughs> Thank you. yeah, yes. Uh, okay. One design or mechanical element, uh, in the airhead range, again, it, it, this could be slash two or older, but generally speaking, I think a lot of folks find they're going to find something in the seventies and on one of the one design or mechanical element. If you could go back in time and change it, what might that be? 
Um, I think that just from my experience as, as a service shop is the side stands. I, I think that they are uh, a constant weak, weak link. Um, I've never liked the side stand on the slash three, the slash two, the slash five and on. Uh, you know, a lot of time we will switch over to the, to a couple different varieties. Mostly now we like to run the, the brown side stand. Um, but I just think that the, the side stands, one, they're difficult for people to deploy comfortably. Uh, I think that it causes the bike to lean at a really weird angle that makes me uncomfortable. Yep. Um, and if for any reason you happen to walk by it and relieve just a little bit of pressure on it and it swings back, you better be ready to catch the bike. Um, so yeah, I would say that that's probably my biggest gripe with, with, uh, a design characteristic of the bike. Yeah, I think Nathan might have mentioned that as one one of a few uh, in his machine <laughs> machine gun rattling off uh, of that. Uh, and I, I agree with you 100%. I've put brown side stands on most of my twin shocks that I've had over the years. For whatever reason, though, the 77S I bought, maybe it's the the stock side stand has been bent or maybe there was somebody, you know, heavier who used to sit on it when it was on the side stand, but it's been the only one stock stand that has a good lean. I'm not uncomfortable walking away from it. I can park it on the side stand. It's, it's got a good angle. I'm not afraid it's going to fall over. I'm okay with it, which is strange. Uh, maybe my mind will change, but uh, I, <laughs> hopefully nothing changes yeah hopefully yeah exactly uh okay uh here's another one uh, and you've heard these uh since you've listened to all the episodes so <clears throat> this may or may not be applicable to you as far as a riding and breakdown story but <clears throat> and may this might be from a customer standpoint uh, where you help somebody out but or you heard a story similar to this but the sort of worst breakdown and fix repair story, whether it was a complete shit show and it could not be repaired, or it was one of these MacGyver amazing moments where there was some duct tape and a, and a bobby pin and, and you got a bike going again. Yeah. Uh, all of mine are like stupid and embarrassing. Um, <laughs> you know, usually it's like I ran out of gas, uh, you know, with test riding a bike and I had to have somebody bring me a can or something like that. Yeah. Or I push it to a gas station or, you know, we have a, uh, something in the electrical system shorting out and it blows a fuse, you know, and, and the nice part about the, the slash twos is that they're magneto driven. So you don't need the battery in order to get them to start and run. But on the twin, on the single cylinders, they're all battery induced, uh, ignition systems. So you have to have the battery in order to do it. So yeah, I have, I've had a number of, of fuses blow on me on singles where it, it just leaves me on the side of the road. I'd say the, the one that sticks out in my mind the most is we, it wasn't actually a BMW. It was, um, a customer brought us a, uh, a 1944 DKW, which uh, was an auto union bike, uh, kind of like it looks like out, like an Audi symbol. Um, and it, there were Russian replica, replica bikes of that made. Um, and occasionally the, the parts will get intermingled because there's not a lot of parts available for those bikes. Um, and I was driving down the road on this. It's a, it's a single cylinder two stroke with a cast iron engine. And, um, you know, it, it, it will not go above a certain speed, no matter how much throttle I give it. 
and I just got super frustrated and I just pulled the air box. Like I reached underneath the seat and just like, like, like Hulkamania just tore the air box <laughs> off of it. And all of a sudden the thing just like jumped to life and just like took off and, you know, was easily doing 60 miles an hour down a dirt road on it. Just out of complete and sheer rage. Um, and yeah, <laughs> those, I mean, those are really the only, the only ones <laughs> I can think of offhand. That's a good one. No, that's a good one. I like that. Uh, okay, so folks want to get in touch with you, BarringtonMotorWorks.com. You've got a Facebook page, uh, Instagram yeah. page, uh, which you update uh, on a pretty regular basis. Uh, so to. they can get get in touch with you that way. Basically, you're a full-service shop, uh, I, and I definitely want to invite folks to go to the website. Uh, there's a lot to see and learn there about what you do. Uh, all right, Andy. Here, the last question: uh, Your preferred oil in in an airhead? What is it? <laughs> uh, currently, we are uh, proponents of Spectro uh, Engine Guard 2050. Okay. Um, it, it as everything it varies depending on what the application is, especially as you get closer to like the slash two model stuff. But for airheads, yeah, we're running the Engine Guard 2050 um, for the Spectro pretty consistently, and, and we've been really happy with the results. Well, let's wrap this up, and let me say, as we, one of the things we first started out with the conversation is, I appreciate the excellent work you did for me uh, on the Thank transmission. Uh, as I mentioned uh, in a follow-up email, uh, I've maybe put about, uh, I don't know, five or 600 miles on that bike uh, since it's repaired, and a friend of mine rode it, and he his first comment was, boy, that transmission feels great. What, what's the deal with it? And I said, well, it's just been rebuilt. Uh, so excellent work on that. Uh, glad, glad to have you as a supporter, uh, of these old motorcycles, uh, keep up the good work, continued success. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity and, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate being included in the, uh, in the list of, uh, amazing mechanics and, and, and people in the industry that you have already interviewed. So thank you very much. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. Thank you. Well, a great visit with Andy this week. You can find him at BarringtonMotorWorks.com or Instagram and Facebook under that same moniker. Until next time, so long, everybody. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.